come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray, to pray with me. Father in heaven, we know that all scripture is breathed out by you, that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that each of us may be competent, equipped for every, every good work. Thus we pray as we come to your word this morning, teach us, reprove us, correct us, train us in righteousness, make us competent and equipped for every good work. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to 1 Kings in chapter 22, 1 Kings chapter 22. I've been, except for last Sunday, which was Easter Sunday, walking us through these narratives of the prophet Elijah. This chapter isn't about Elijah, but I want to take it up anyway, because it comes next, and I'm prone to that kind of thing, rather like a rented pony. I always go back to the barn, no matter where you take me. But, um, um, but I want, the primary goal this morning is if you don't know this incident, you need to. I want you to have a picture in your mind of what took place on this day. And I want that picture, I hope, to come back to you at various times. Times when you wonder if evil is really going to win out in the world. You wonder if God is really sovereign over all things as we define his providence, that it's his rule over all things for his glory and our good. If you ever wonder about this, I hope this picture comes in your mind. If you ever wonder if God's blessings can find you, if you ever wonder if God really sees you when you sin, if you ever wonder if it's necessary to take his word seriously, all of that comes from this incident. If you keep it in your head, it will help you. Now, I want to read the first 40 verses of 1 Kings chapter 22. Normally, I like to just read that because I think it's important for us to learn to listen to the Word of God. I know it's difficult in that length of a passage. We're not accustomed to listening. Some of us have more difficulties than others. But, but today, rather than do that, I want to take it paragraph by paragraph. I just want to annotate as we go through it. There's some things that will help us as we understand it, just to make sure we're all on the same page. And then after that, I want to draw some, some uh, I think, helpful points for us. All right? So 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 1. Hear the word of God. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel said to his servants, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. All right, so we've got Syria and Israel. Now, one of the chapters we didn't take up was chapter 20. And in chapter 20 of 1 Kings, we see that the king of Assyria greatly insults the king of Israel, who is Ahab. And that insult is, 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 is a deep one, and he threatens um, the safety of everybody in Israel and threatens to take over the country, if you will. And so God, it's rather amazing if you know Ahab, and we do, God gives Syria into the hands of Ahab. In other words, Ahab conquers the Syrians in battle. However, he uh, takes the king of Syria captive, whose name is Ben-Hadad, and he takes Ben-Hadad uh, captive. But rather than killing him, uh, which is his due in war and judgment upon him that God wants to bring to keep Israel safe from the Syrians, he makes a covenant with him because Ben-Hadad bargains with, uh, with uh, Ahab and says, I'll make you this deal if you keep me alive, and that is, I'll restore to you all the cities that my father took from Israel. Ben-Hadad's dad 
had taken cities, and now they were in control of the Syrians. And so he says, I'll give all those back to you, and I'll let you have bazaars, a bazaar in, in Samaria. And that is, you can come and, and sell your wares and all of that in Samaria, make a lot of money. Uh, and so Ahab says, all right. Now, he could have had all that anyway, but uh, by being a victor in the battle, but he made this covenant with, uh, with Ben-Hadad and let him go. Now, Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. Now, you remember, there was a split in ancient Israel after King Solomon, the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, northern kingdom, Israel. That's what's being governed now by Ahab, southern kingdom, Judah, which is being governed by Jehoshaphat. And one of the things that happened in the northern kingdom was that Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, um, wanted to make sure that people in the northern kingdom didn't go back to Jerusalem to worship. So he set up two places of worship in the northern kingdom, one in Dan and one in Bethel. And to entice them to make it really interesting, he built in each of these places of worship a golden calf. Now you would have thunk that they would have learned the golden calves don't taste very good. But, now this was really not a violation so much of the first commandment. It was where God says you should have no other gods before me. But it was really a violation of the second commandment that says you need to worship me not with graven images. That is not the way you think I am, but the way that I really am. So they built this golden calf to represent God. And it misrepresented God, of course. Every image that we come up with misrepresents God. And so, there were these golden calves. Because you, so you can imagine that the worship in Israel sunk. Still in Judah, they worshiped in Jerusalem. And Jehoshaphat actually was one of the good kings of the southern kingdom, one of the good kings of Judah. And why he was with Ahab is a real interesting question. Because you see, often there was a great conflict between the northern kingdom and, and the southern kingdom. Here they're coming together. Jehoshaphat seemed to be one who loved peace. In fact, what happened was that his son, Jehoshaphat's son, married Ahab's daughter. Not unusual in those days to have alliances by way of marriage. But that alliance between Jehoshaphat's son and Ahab's daughter would be disastrous for Judah down the road. But that's another story. And so here they are together. Now, Jehoshaphat was a godly king and a godly man, but one friend of mine put it like this of Jehoshaphat. He said this. He said he scored high marks in piety, but low marks in common sense. And so even though he was a good king and a godly king, he made some really unwise decisions. Partnering with Ahab was no doubt one of them. But uh, Ahab says, well, will you go with me? And he says, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your, he uh, as your horses, which is Hebrew for yes. Verse 5. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, go up. For the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord uh, of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of uh, Chanana, I don't know how you say that, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall push the Syrians until they're destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the, hands, into the hand of the king. So, so, so here's the deal. Jehoshaphat, good king Jehoshaphat, godly king Jehoshaphat says, before we do this, we need to inquire of the Lord. Do you have any prophet who can help us? And so Ahab brings in 400 prophets. He's got them all on his payroll. Think of that, 400 
prophets. And they all come in and in one chorus say, yes, go up, you can take him. Jehoshaphat is somewhat suspicious of that. We don't know exactly why, but it could be because he knew they were all on Ahab's payroll and because he knew that they weren't prophets of Baal. They had already been dealt with. But he knew that they would have been prophets out of the tradition of Jeroboam and that religion of the golden calves. And so he says, well, can we do better? Well, Ahab says, yeah, there is one guy, but I don't like him. In fact, I hate him. And the reason I hate him is he never says anything good to me. He's always telling me, no, this isn't of the Lord and all of that. And so Jehoshaphat says, well, go get him. And so they get him. And, um, and, 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 and so he summons an officer to bring him. But, but here's the scene that's painted by the narrator of 1 Kings. Here's the scene. You've got um, at, at the gate of Samaria, uh, this important place, You've got Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Picture this in your mind. Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they're dressed very kingly. I mean, if you drove by, you go, oh, there's kings there. You know, that's how they're very colorful, jewelry, probably all that stuff. They look very, very kingly in the midst of all that. And there they were. And, and the prophets are prophesying, go to Syria, beat them, go to Syria. And then there's one prophet, Zedekiah, takes these two horns and he puts them up and he runs around and he goes, kill him, kill him, kill him. And so you got this whole big scene, this great amount of enthusiasm from the prophets of God, presumably saying, thus says the Lord, go. Well, verse 13, and the messenger who went to summon uh, Micaiah said to him, behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like uh, let, let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, uh, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall, you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has declared disaster for you. Here's the situation. Ahab sends a limo after Micaiah. The limo driver says, listen, if you know what's good for you, you'll tell the king what he wants to hear, just like all the other prophets. That'll be really great if you can do that. And Micaiah says, but, but you don't understand. I'm a prophet of God. I have no choice over this matter. I need to say what he tells me to say. It isn't up to me. It's his word, not mine. So I'm captive, if you will, to it. So then he gets to uh, where the king is, and the king says, all right, prophesy. Micaiah says, go up in the battle. You'll win. Now, we don't know the tone of voice that he used when he said that. We don't know if he just sort of entered into all of the other, with all the other prophets and said it just like them, so that it didn't sound quite sincere. Or if he was mocking or sarcastic or how he said it, but clearly Ahab got the picture, you're not telling me the truth, are you? And so he says, no, no. But you can see this was a recurring kind of situation because, because uh, Ahab says to him, how many times do I have to tell you this? Seems like this happened before. And so he said, well, here's the situation. There'll be no peace in Israel until the shepherd is dead and you are the shepherd. He says, this is what I've seen in glory. I see the real throne. You guys are sitting on thrones. You think you're ruling, but there's another who's ruling over you. 
And this one who's ruling over you is, 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 says, how can I get Ahab to go up into battle? What can we do? And a spirit comes before him, a lying, deceitful spirit. And so the Lord sends the lying, deceitful spirit into your prophets. And you realize at that point in time, the deceit has taken away. He tells him what he's going to do. He says, this is what's happening, Ahab. These prophets that you have, these 400 are deceiving you, right? I realized when this deceitful spirit came that everyone still did what they wanted to do. These prophets still wanted to tell, tell Ahab what he wanted to hear. Ahab still wanted to hear it. Nobody was being manipulated here. They all did what they wanted. But God was sovereign over this whole event. And he said, that's the situation. Ahab, these are lying and deceitful Deceitful spirits. Verse 24. Then Zedekiah uh, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. The king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations and bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you people. So, so Zedekiah gets a little upset because he's sort of the king prophet, the, the, the lead prophet around here. And he says, when did, when, did, when did you get the word of the Lord? Why not me? And, and Micaiah says, well, you'll know I really do have the word of the Lord when you're running for your life, when you're hiding in the inner chamber. And then you'll know that I really do have the word of the Lord. That really upset the king, so he said, put him in prison. Let's keep him there until I return. And in essence, Micaiah said, if you return, then I'm clearly not the prophet of God because you won't return. Then, 29. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day and the king propped up his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. About sunset, and about sunset a cry went through the army Every man to his city and every man to his country. Now, even with all of this information, Ahab thought he could trick God. And Jehoshaphat. You kind of want to say to Jehoshaphat, um, do you see what's happening here? Do you want a bigger target on your back? Uh, you know, Ahab says, I'm going to disguise myself. They won't know me. But you wear your kingly robes and all of that. And Jehoshaphat went on with it. But then the Syrian king says, hey, no small fries. I just want the king of Israel. Go after him. And so they see Jehoshaphat all dressed up and shiny like a king. And they go to him to kill him. And he says, whoa, I'm Jehoshaphat. I don't know how they, he could convince them of that. But he did. He said, his ID. And they didn't kill him. So that part of, of the plan was in a sense thwarted. But, but Ahab is still running free. And so we wonder, is the prophecy going to come true? And here's the picture. A random, anything really random, a random arrow shot finds Ahab right in the only place perhaps it could find and he begins to bleed, and he bleeds ultimately to death. Verse 37. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, 
and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. Remember the prophecy, perhaps, of Elijah a couple of chapters ago. And the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built are not written, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers and uh, uh, Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. All right, now, what do you make of this? What do you make of this? Not, I don't think, that we're supposed to have prophets running around that we consult for big decisions. That was in ancient Israel. That was a gift of God to ancient Israel to give them prophets. You remember that in the old covenant, the land was part of, of, of their life. And so, and, and, and so the kings had opportunity to consult prophets and uh, to get help there. New Testament prophets are different. They speak the word of God from the word of God uh, as opposed to this sort of predictive kind of help prophecy that the kings of ancient Israel uh, were given. So, so it's not that. So, so what is it really? I think this first. I think this first. I think we learn, I learn, the great danger of not wanting to hear the word of God. The great danger of not wanting to hear the word of God. So averse was Ahab to listening to the truth of God and following it, that he hired 400 prophets to tell him what he wanted to hear. Their job was not so much to get to know God so they would know his will, but to get to know Ahab so they could tell Ahab what he wanted to hear. That was their job, and they did it uh, really well. You see, the danger for all of us even as followers of Christ, is to surround ourselves with people who will not tell us the truth, but who will tell us what we want to hear. It's a great danger in the church. It's easy for us, you see, for us to have this sort of nice religious society and that, we, that we kind of all get together and we like each other and we have a nice time together, but, but, but nobody's really speaking really speaking the truth to one another. It can happen in the context of church life. Uh, for instance, the Unitarian Church, which is not a Christian church, but is disguised as such Unitarian, not Trinitarian, that's the deal there, uh, made up of really nice people very often, very civic-minded people, very interesting people, people who are very interested in, in, in community, in the community, and, and interested in, 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 in bettering, if you will, humankind, but, but, but miss the truth, the real truth. Well, listen to the real truth of our own sin and the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ that all centers, all revolves around him. It can happen in the liberal, if we will, theologically liberal Protestant church as well, ceasing to listen to the word of God. Uh, this expression that the Bible contains the word of God rather than is the word of God. And when we think about the Bible containing the word of God, then it's up to us to find it. That is to say, what we like then becomes the word of God. What we don't like, what fits us becomes the word. What doesn't fit us isn't the word of God. Great danger, you see, to, to pick and choose in the midst of that. And so we've seen churches tumble and fall even without knowing they're tumbling and falling because no one's really telling the truth. The, the, the difficulty even in our lives it's reflected, I think, in a book title. Jerry Bridges wrote a book. We've cited it before. It's, it's, it's titled Respectable Sins. Now, the title itself, if you understand his point, is convicting. Even without reading the book, it's, the title itself is convicting. Because what he's saying in that is, of course, we know there are no respectable sins in the eyes of God, but there can become respectable sins in our eyes. We just become so accustomed to them that, that, that nobody checks anybody on them anymore. We, we just kind of live them out. Some of them we get rather stuck in. Uh, I've mentioned before, I, I think it's almost impossible for us in our culture, in our day, to understand what materialism really is. I, I, I simply don't. I mean, that's a tough one. It's hard to really know that because we live so much so much in the midst of it. 
I remember one time in a church about, well, about 30 years ago, some friends were talking about raising some money to, for a particular mission to help. And this one family, great family, says, you know, we'd love to help, but we're building a pool right now. Now, that all made sense to us. But, 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 but there's something about that. I like swimming pools, and I've swam in their pool, and I've had a great time there, so I'm not. But, but, but just, just the idea of it, isn't it? It's so hard for us. We're so in the midst of this. How do we, how do we separate ourselves from this? How do, how do we speak the truth to ourselves and to one another? How do we hear God in the midst of the culture in which we live that's so materially bent? It's just a difficult thing. And, and we, can, we stop the struggle then. Perhaps we've lost at that point. Or gossip, it's so easy, you see, in prayer meetings to say, pray about this. Have you heard? Right? How many times have we said, I know I shouldn't say this, but. Yeah, we get in the midst of this. It, becomes, it can become a cultural thing, systemic within us, this sort of respectable sins, or, or perhaps not quite telling the truth, or, or perhaps lust, perhaps Various kinds of immorality. Now we want to hear what we want to hear, but we don't want to be told. We don't want to be told the truth in our culture and even in churches throughout our country. Uh, uh, this the whole notion of of sexuality, of, of of roles of men and women in the context of marriage and marriage and divorce and 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 human sexuality and all of that being redefined to fit what we really want to hear rather than hearing the real truth. And you can make that list on your own. Great danger for us to put around ourselves and to be in settings where all we do is tell each other what we really, what we really want to hear. There's a great danger that Paul writes to Timothy, the pastor of the church, young pastor of the church in Ephesus, uh, about this, for instance, in 2 Timothy in chapter 4, Paul writes to him and says, verse 3, it says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That was happening during the days of Paul and Timothy. Uh, and it's happening in our day, and it's, it's a temptation, you know, even for us. I mean, we, we, we can rebuke Ahab all we want, but we really do like people to tell us we're just fine. Right? And it isn't that we should run around and pick out each other's sins all the time, but, but you get my point. We have to be cautious. We need to be in community in such a way that the word of God is being taught and shared in all these various settings so that we really do hear it, like it, if you will, like it or not. Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 3 of this same book. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. The, the end result for Timothy is the same as with Micaiah. To continue to hold and to teach the word of God. So in both of these passages, the passage in, in, in chapter 4, uh, Paul begins that whole passage about people are going to only want to, 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 to receive what their itching ears want to hear he says this to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not want to hear it, but keep doing it. And then, of course, in the end of chapter 3, at the end of all of this, we receive this great word, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every, every good work. He says, listen, this word comes from God. It's necessary to us. We can't keep it from, another, from one another. To keep it from one another is to our great detriment. Because, as we read in one of our responsive, our responsive reading this morning, this passage from Hebrews chapter 4, 
the author of Hebrews writes, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He said, listen, the word of God is alive. This book isn't like any other book. It's, it's alive. When, when we read it it, it, it churns and works within us. It's alive. It's active. It's doing stuff. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, which means it goes wherever it wants. Nothing can keep it out. It can cut anywhere it points to cut. Anywhere it's put in, it can cut. Nothing can stop it from doing its work, from doing its, its cutting. And it, it, what it does is it goes deep within us. It discerns the thoughts and exposes the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. It isn't just superficial. When we're exposed to this word, it, it comes within us and it says, no, no, this is what is true about God. This is what is true about you, really. You know, face it, see it, deal with it. You might remember that when Paul was writing to the church in Corinth about all these spiritual gifts, the one that was most controversial, it seems, and even still in our day, this whole notion of speaking in tongues. And, and Paul said, basically speaking in tongues is unhelpful publicly, that is, in, within the community, because no one understands what you're talking about. But he says what's really helpful in the midst of community is, is, is prophesying. When Paul meant prophesying, he didn't mean running around with two horns, running around going, take the city. Uh, but he meant speaking the truth, speaking this word of God. He said, now that's what's valuable. Because you see, here's what happens when an unbeliever comes into a place where everybody is prophesying. You realize this morning we've been prophesying as you, as you sang the songs that we sang that come from the word of God that are true, we're prophesying together. Do you realize as we're reading these passages of Scripture, responsively or however we're doing it, we're prophesying, we're speaking forth the truth of God. And you realize then that we do that for a variety of reasons. It's worship, right? We do that for, to, to build each other up so we get it, so we hear it, so we understand that, so we're exposed to it, so it, it exposes our hearts, if you will, and the intentions of our souls. Plus, then, there are those who come, and some of you may be in this situation, who really don't believe. Our hope is that you hear this, and here's what Paul says can happen, verse 24, but of all, of uh, 1 Corinthians 14, but all, if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secret of his heart, uh, secrets of his heart's heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you, that's this sense of the word of God. We have to be very careful that the word of God doesn't become just so many words to us. That when we open it or that when we're together with one another doing Bible study or when we're sharing the scripture with each other or when we're listening to a sermon in a church that we don't hear blah, 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 amen. But it, it can become so many word says we live in a culture where we don't really pay attention very often uh, or, or quite often because you know, people come to us and say hello how are you and we say fine and it means we don't even hear any of that right we don't hear any of that it's just, boo, 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 just a routine how many times you're sitting watching television and someone comes to you and says what did he say and you say I don't know I wasn't really paying attention, you know, so much in our culture. Or you listen to sports radio, blah, 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 you know, uh, all this stuff we listen to, or the news. After a while, it's just so many words. And then, you see, we listen to the word of God, and it's just so many words, and that's a great danger, great danger. So how do we keep it from becoming just so many words? Well, James helps us here, as we mentioned earlier. James in chapter 1, verse 22, he writes this. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. 
If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he, what he, what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being uh, no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see, when we hear it, we must engage it. When we hear it, we must engage it. We would say apply it, if you will. However, if it's the, the primary, the first application of any word of God to us is, of course, to believe it, to say, yes, that is true. And then to say, well, then how does it impact my thinking? How does it impact the way that I live? See, it all comes. J.I. Packer, in a fine, fine book uh, called Hot Tub Religion, um, written a while ago. It's quite a good book, by the way. It's a great summary of the Christian life. So it was written in the late 80s. There's a new one out by a different title, which I don't know what that title is. But He writes this. He said, our living should, be according, should accordingly be made up of sequences having the following shape. He says, so this is sort of the sort of this progression, the sequences of our lives. We begin by considering what we have to do or need to do. That comes to us from the word of God. Recognizing that without divine help, we can do nothing. And thus we confess to the Lord our inability and ask that he, that help be given. Then confidence that prayer has been heard and help will be given, we go to work. And having done what we could, we thank God for the ability to do as much as we did and take the discredit for whatever was still imperfect and inadequate, asking forgiveness for our shortcomings and begging for power to do better next time. In this sequence, there is no room neither for passivity nor self-reliance. On the contrary, we first trust God and on, the basis, on that basis, work as hard as we can and repeatedly find ourselves enabled to do what we know we could not have done by ourselves. That happens through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit which is the wellspring and taproot of all holy and Christian action. Thus is the inside story of all the Christians' authentically good works. So, so we act on it. First we believe it, you see. We say, that's true. But, but then what happens? It exposes us. And that exposure it exposes our sin and our inability. Even sometimes our lack of desire to follow after God, to really listen. And then he says, confess it. Repent. Ask for help to do it, and then get on doing it. And then at the end of the day, you look back and realize, some yes, some no. Give him thanks for what was done. Confess that which is still left undone or still in sin, and go through the sequence again. It's not that you're relying upon yourself, you're not. It's not that you're passive, you're active. All of that together, you see. So James says, when you look into the Bible, you look into the Word of God, it's like looking at a mirror. And if your face is dirty, you should do something about it. <laughs> you should get it washed. If your collar is, 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 is out, put it in, you see. And if you don't, people are going to say, I don't think he looked in the mirror this morning. We need to look into the Word of God and respond to it. If we stop responding will never hear it again. I've known people who've lived in big cities by trains. And, and I said, well, how do, you, well what, how do you deal with a train? And they said, well, you know, the first week we lived in the apartment, the train went by at one in the morning and three in the morning and five in the morning. We got up every time. So the second week we stopped getting up. And the third week we stopped hearing it. Ah, it's true, isn't it? It's true with the very word of God. We need to hear it often, but we need to hear it. And the way that we hear it, you see, we listen, and then we inspect ourselves. And then we apply it. We stop doing that. After a time, it becomes only so many, so many words. Jesus spoke of this, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after that great sermon that's convicting and helpful. He says this, verse 24, chapter 7, Matthew. 
Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was that fall. He says, listen, the secret is this, not just, you know, hear and be able to repeat, take a multiple choice test and be able to pass it. You need to take these words of mine and live them. Of course, we know we don't do that in our own strength. We do that by asking for strength. But we don't do that by sitting idly by either. We do that by taking hold and getting after it. If we stop taking hold and getting after it, the Bible becomes, the Word of God becomes only so many words to us. And after a time, after a time, it has no impact on us at all. But you see, the Word of God is going to hit its, it's going to hit its mark. We read in our responsive reading from Isaiah chapter 55 this morning that God's Word always accomplishes its purpose. It will always accomplish its purpose. Wherever it goes, it accomplishes its, its purpose. Um, when God first came upon the prophet Jeremiah, he gave Jeremiah a prophetic word. He said, speak this word. And then God said to Jeremiah, I am watching over my word to perform it, to accomplish it. He said, here's my word, and every time my word goes forth, it will accomplish that for which I sent it. It always accomplishes its purpose. I think of Ahab. This word came, and he tried to do everything he could to, to pervert it, to, to, to make it not be true, to, 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 to trick, to, to, as he disguises himself in battle, thinking, oh, I know what the word of God is, but, but, but I, I, can, I can beat that. And that's the picture that I want in my mind and is in my mind, and I think of quite often of this arrow sort of randomly flying. And God is saying, uh, you can't thwart. You can't thwart my will. When I was a kid, my grandfather almost always prayed the same prayers, same introduction, same middle, same end. And uh, part of his ending was that God would rule and overrule. I never really understood what that meant. But my grandfather said it, so I did too. And, uh, but after I began to think about that, I, I, I got the picture. And this is the picture you see. Um, God is ruling and overruling Ahab. See, Ahab ruled, and Ahab said, oh, I can be disguised, and, and Jehoshaphat would be the king. They'll take him and not me. And it looked like that really was going to work. But God said, no, 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 I'm going to overrule you. And just to show you how I can do that, just to show you that I'm sovereign over everything and nothing can thwart my will, I'm going to take this random shot from this guy who might just be frustrated, going, rats, we missed Ahab, so I got one arrow left. Poof! And it will find its mark. Because I rule and overrule. I'm sovereign over everything. Nothing can thwart my will. When my word says this is going to happen, it is going to happen. It may not look like it for a while. And you may wonder, if is it really going to happen? But it really, 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 really will happen. My word is true. I won't be mocked. And that's true in our lives. That's why, again, in this responsive reading from uh, Psalm, at the end of our responsive reading, the passages came from Psalm 19, the end of Psalm 19, which is a, a passage that deals with God speaking the very, the very word of God and, and says this, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. It really does that. So when our souls need revived, that's the purpose that God has given his word is to revive the souls of his people. So we go to his word to be revived. He said, this will revive you. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That's my life verse, by the way. Um, that we gain wisdom by knowing the word of God, these, the simple ones among us. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. You see, even in the midst of difficulties, we go to the word and it watches over us. It may take time, but the purpose that God has given his word to his people is that they may rejoice in heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure and light in the eyes we see. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The, ru- the rules of the Lord are true and righteous are together. And then he says, moreover, by them, your servant is warned. You see, we need to listen to the warnings of Scripture. The warnings of Scripture are given to believers to enable us to persevere so that we don't become apathetic, so that we don't become lethargic. When believers read warnings, it puts us on our toes, our ears perk up, and we say, I get it, I don't want that to happen. For instance, the the whole book of Hebrews is written to a church that, as he puts it in chapter 5, verse 11, has become dull of hearing. And so, what's the approach? The approach is to warn. Don't be dull of hearing, because if you're dull of hearing, you're going to lose it. Notice what he says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Don't stop listening to this. You need it. If it becomes so many words to you, you'll drift away. That's simply true. And then he quotes in chapter 3 from Psalm 95. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He says, hang on. And you do that by continuing to listen to this, to this word of God. As the baseball season began this year, spring training heard a few players interviewed, and, and they all said the same thing. They were older players. We've been doing this for years. They tell us the same thing every spring training. These guys have been probably playing baseball since they were four, and every opening season they've been being told exactly the same thing because baseball is the same for a five-year-old as it is for a 35-year-old. I mean, it's, it's a game, and it has mechanics, and, 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 and the truth is if they stop listening to that, they're dead. Same thing for us. It's by the word of God that we're, we're sustained. That arrow hits. It warns. It will not be mocked. But I don't know about you, but, but I wonder at times. God has made all these promises to us as his, as his people. And I think, can that blessing arrow ever hit me? <laughs> you know, I'm in the midst of something. And I think, where is God in this? How can this really, can, can, can really the promises of God actually find me where I am at this moment in time? And it seems like no, never could any good come to me from this, regardless of what the word of God says. And, and yet, this picture comes into my mind of a blessing from God looking random, flying from a place I might not even have thought it could come. And he says, it will land. Psalm 138. The psalmist is in one of those situations wondering, can any good come? Begins like this, as all psalms, most psalms do. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. You've exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. But then he gets more personal, verse 6. It says, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. He's saying, right now I'm walking in the midst of trouble, but I'm trusting you that you'll take care of my enemies. You haven't yet, but I trust that you will, verse 8. And here's his confidence. He says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. That is, his word will find its mark. Whatever he promises, he'll bring to pass. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. 
Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. He says, I know the purpose you have for me is for me to know and experience your love, your steadfast love for me. And then in the reality of the moment, this prayer is prayed by the psalmist, the last sentence. Do not forsake the work of your hands. In other words, God, you started with this promise that you would reveal, show your steadfast love to me that I would experience. So please do that. <laughs> Hadn't happened yet, but please do that. And see, that's where we are many times. And the answer, will he do that? The answer to the question, can he do that? The answer is yes. Will he do that? The answer is yes. Why? Because his word will always find its mark. Ahab couldn't disguise enough, couldn't trick, manipulate God. It found its mark. It'll find us. That's a word of warning. It will find us. If the intention is a word of grace, it will find us. God will not be mocked. He is sovereign. We trust in him. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us you would enable us to hear this word and believe it, that we would know that there is, in fact, great danger in not listening to you, becoming numb to your word. So I pray that you would help us, that you would give us grace, that we would be attuned, and that we would apply that which is true. Father, we take great confidence that your word will always be successful, always do that for which you've sent it. We know that there are times when your word is sent for judgment, it will accomplish it. We know there are times when your word is sent to bring grace, it will accomplish it. And your promise to your people is that your word has come that we may know and experience and live in your steadfast love. So Father, I pray that we would know that. We would live in it. Father, we ask that blessing would find various ones and blame Jewel and Molly on their wedding yesterday that you would bless them uh, for the family of Kristen Herter as they grieved the death, the loss of her sister. Those facing surgery for Lorraine Canistra and for Judy Doolin. For the recovery of Heather Lessig. For those who've sustained losses in this storm last night in Wichita, perhaps other places. That your believers would find grace and help for their time of need. For our VBS, Father, that it would, it would be a year that many children would come and come to know, to trust in Jesus and to live lives knowing him. We pray that you would bless these children and all who help out in that, uh, that ministry. Father, we pray for our own church that you would uh, enable us to do the work to which you've called us, and that we would know your blessing, and that we would follow your word and your word only, and that the truth of God would be on our lips. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.